0: Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True Crime Uncensored... I am. Let me check. Legendary Burrow Bear, the man right there is Howard Lapidus. Now, when you say let me check, what do you actually check? I'm checking my driver's license, my social security card, my passport, my FCC third class endorsement. I I, I still have have the number, Element 9 endorsement there? I have them all. Good. I still have have every one of them. uh, Uh, Hanging on the wall? Hanging on the wall and 60 of them behind each other. Paul Gozo, in case you don't know, he is the man responsible, no, not for numerous crimes and convictions, but he's responsible for when Ken Urell, the second most corrupt cop in America, uh, turned to Paul and said, who could turn my memoir into a brilliant book? Uh, Paul said, probably anybody but Burl Baird. He heard the name Burl (laughs) Baird and thought that's what he meant and uh, called me. And uh, (laughs) I got hold of uh, Frank C. Jr. And between the three of us, we... Did a dandy book. It's there you go. And blue. Now.
1: Thanks to Paul. Thank you, Paul. You know, there's, there's always going to be part of me that hates that, I, get, that, that I, I passed on it. He came to me and I just said, you know, sometimes you have to be honest as an author and say I could write it and I could collect a paycheck, but I'm probably not the best person for that one. Um, and so I passed, and again, there's part of me that kicked, kicked myself because when I read it, I'm like, ah, oh, this is so good, I wish I was the author. You've got to be honest sometimes, uh, but there's somebody better, and you have to you know, do what's best for the subject,
0: right? Yep, and uh, I'll tell you, I uh, really appreciate it, because it was great working with Ken, and of course, uh, Fred Chuardo, and we're happy with the book came out, and of course, in the front, it says, thank you, Paul Guzzo! We could have done it without you. <laughs> Did you send
2: him a check, or no? Uh, hell just, no. The, just the thank you? <laughs> <laughs> hell no, no check. They come nuts. <laughs> you know, there's so, there's so little money in being an author, anyway. Oh, it is. It's the old days, you know,
0: it's kind of like things are backwards. If Oris and Wells were alive today, he could make a lot of- of movies because of the video thing, <coughs> and digital recording. You wouldn't have to be scrounging for pieces of celluloid. And then authors, however, it's exactly the opposite. We used to get massive amounts of money <laughs> for small amounts of work. But now, however, there's like, like some police forces have an IQ cap there's a, and a salary cap in the professional sports. The amount of money paid authors has dropped like a cosmic rock in the last 20 years. Well, who reads? That's encouraging for those of you who are literary and have always wanted to grow up and write books.
1: (laughs) You can (laughs) Just don't plan on getting paid. (laughs) I I feel bad. every, uh, Every semester I go and I talk to a journalism class over at University of Tampa. And the the professor always says maybe this time try not to dissuade people from becoming journalists. <laughs> I got to like, I got to be honest. You, you know, every morning you wake up and that could be the day you get laid off that the newspapers making making more cuts, and, uh, or you could get a further cut in, in your salary. So I tell them right away, you're uh, going into journalism or writing. What uh, I thought was hope uh, you're not expecting to be rich.
0: What's debilitating is the years that there are more journalists killed in the line of duty than there are law enforcement personnel. Jeez. I didn't know that. Yeah, and now that, I do. That is really depressing, because I didn't know that either. Yeah, uh, yeah. You follow up on, on do a do a search on journalists
2: killed in the line of duty, and it's horrifying. And I think, boy, am I in the right profession? Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, if you if you don't accept an invite to the uh, to the Saudi consulate, you <laughs> should be okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you,
0: it's—well, no, you know how it is. Paul, if you're going to be a journalist and someone says, we're going to kill you if you investigate this story, you go, oh, I'm on the right track.
1: Right, you're right about that. <laughs> you know, luckily for me, I don't do—you know, I'm not into that type of journalism, but there are days where uh, there'll be a murder and there's nobody else in the office around and I have to go out and cover. And, there, you know, I'll admit, there's, there are times you have to go into a neighborhood and— uh, an hour after the murder took place, and you have to go knocking on doors away from where the police is to see if anybody, there's any witnesses. And I, well, I do always call my wife. They'll talk to you before they'll talk to the police, though. That's the one. You're bit. right about that. But I mean, when you're knocking on the door and the smell and, and the smell of crack is coming, is just. I, that sounds one like one old home
0: here. week for me. <laughs>
1: but you know how it goes. You got to knock on the door because they might know something. They right. might have seen something, and that's that's the job. Again, it's few and far between. But the reporters that I know who have to do that every day, I. Think Man, if people only knew how dangerous your job was, and you know, I have to do it every couple of months, but there are reporters on the staff who are doing that weekly. And yeah. God
0: bless them. Well, the thing is, is that you wind up, it's very, very strange, is people will talk to you or talk to me, who will not talk to attorneys, will not talk to police, won't talk
2: to anybody else, but yeah. they will talk to us. Well, that's because you, you look like a doddering old fool, and
0: <laughs> the they're old not boy, concerned. What harm can he do? Yeah. <laughs> No, part of it is ego. If they, if, if you write books, uh, which you and I both do, uh, there's an element of, of fame there. They trust. <laughs> uh, what is that element? They think that, that, that <laughs> it's uh, not, for the, not for the it's author, the but for the Silesian. person they write about. Yeah. yeah. Well, like look, you take for example when Paul uh, turned us on to this Kenya thing, and Adam Diaz, uh, the, the the Dominican drug cartel, calls Frank Gerardo. Because I Adam Diaz, out of the Dominican Drug Cartel, he to identify a busy schedule of making illegal millions to do an interview with you about the, this case because I want to make sure that I am portrayed correctly. And if the things that happened that I was involved with were portrayed accurately. Same thing with the pop uh, punch. Pavley Stenamirvic is in the book because uh, he was active at that time. And he says what it was like dealing with Adam Diaz, etc.
2: C.G. Boyer. That would be me over here in the corner. That's his job. He's our fact checker. Uh, I have a, uh, a off the track side question. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you worked for uh, Cigar City Magazine. Yes, I used to work for Cigar City Magazine. And do you are you an aficionado of cigars?
1: Uh, no. So C- Cigar City Magazine was named that. It was a history magazine. Um, I think they're still around, uh, actually, but. Tampa's nickname is Cigar City because, uh, in yeah, because in the early 1900s we were uh, the cigar capital of the world. Do yeah, big time. Yeah, am I fishing? I don't know because if I smoke more than one a month, my kids start lecturing me that I'm that I'm going to get lung cancer. Oh, no,
0: that's no, ridiculous. No, don't don't inhale. Uh, just like <laughs> uh have a Tampa jewel with a wood filter. No, no, it was a wood mouthpiece. I always get those confused. Uh, it also was the sex capital of. Uh, America, except for Tacoma, <laughs> Washington.
1: We were—I uh, don't know if we still are. I, I don't know if they've come out with the official uh, official
0: stats on how many people are having sex in Tampa at any given moment.
1: <laughs> no, in the '90s, we were the strip club capital of the country. We had more strip clubs per square mile than uh, any other city in the country, um, even more than Vegas, which I think shocks a lot of people. Oh, well, I mean, but again, Vegas may have topped us. I haven't been to Vegas in years, and. They haven't, they haven't done the statistic, but in the 90s yeah, we were strip club capital, and so... How do, why
0: that. was that? Why is that? Is it because of the large love of strippers by Cubans, or is it uh, something well, else?
1: Well, hey, we're a tourist town... So, tourist Towns are always, I think, going to have more than, you know, you're not going to have dozens of strip clubs in Trenton, New Jersey, because you actually going to go Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, but in Tampa, yeah, I mean, you put them near the hotels, and a lot of the hotels are around the football stadium. So, if you go out near Buck Stadium, that is just a strip club strip. But that's all there are. There's there's restaurants, hotels, and Clubs. and then B, you know, we're, we're supposedly, no one's ever challenged us on this, but Joe Redner, uh, who's a Tampa guy, uh, to the day he die will claim that he invented the lap dance, so... that was
0: oh, the first man to have a lap?
1: He, he's, <laughs> says he's the one who came up with the concept of, uh, of the lap dance at his strip club. He owns the Mons Venus, which is, you know, our most famous one, and... I think that's another reason we're considered uh, the strip club capital, because we have that claim. Again, is it true? Well, who
0: knows? Is who knows? Step- it's the is pink no flamingo capital it? of America.
2: <laughs> he's
1: been saying this for decades, and no one's challenged him, so look.
0: You well, no, no, who, else, who wants that, else wants that title?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> everybody. Everybody. Yeah. You know, I, um, Strip clubs are a great way to make money, uh, and not simply because of people paying to watch people take their clothes off. But rather, usually they are outside the city limits in unincorporated areas. And uh, yeah. and then what they do is the minute—and they, they use the money from the strip club to buy up the land around the strip club as the city grows. So suddenly, when it becomes annexed by the city, you own the most valuable property, and you put a giant uh, skyscraper on it, and you're wealthy.
1: That's smart. Very smart. You know, I, I, I'm going to— uh Again, stay with this story. This is all rumor and hearsay. Uh, so who knows if it's true? But I did hear from the mouth of the guy who kind of started the strip club business. And he swears this is true. He's long since passed. I just, But, again, who knows if he was making up a tall tale. But so the strip club industry in a way in Tampa started because of Dolly Parton. So oh. Here's the story. There was a bar... Kind of like in the woodsy area of Tampa, you're talking like 1960s, called the Deep South, and it was it was like one of those country music bars that if you showed up there, you'd get to hear a good band, and you'd very likely see one of those old-school, like, uh, roadhouse fights going.
0: Oh, that's you'd always about entertaining. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the owner was this guy, Bobby Rodriguez, uh, and just one of those guys whose fists were always when he was older were swollen and crooked from all the fights he'd gotten into as a younger man. So anyway, he bought he bought this place the Deep South and he's like, I'm gonna clean this place up, turn it into a good country music bar without the fight, you know. So one of the first acts he would get regularly was Dolly Parton before she was, you know, famous this yeah. world celebrity. And he would notice whenever she would come, the place was an absolute sellout and it was mostly men. Mm-hmm. And he and he started asking, what is it everybody likes about her? And they would say the obvious reason that, you know, we're all thinking. And he said to himself, well, if all these men are coming to see her because they like the way she looks, not so much her music, why the hell am I paying all these great stars all these great musicians? So a few weeks later, he shut the place down, retooled it, and turned it into a... Uh, back then, it was illegal to go uh, full dude, so he turned it into a pasty club, uh, you know, song and pasties. Yeah. And then... It became the first, like, dog and pasty club in Tampa. It was a huge thing. His uh, manager he hired was Joe Redner, Joe, who now owns the Venus and started, you know, as I just said, claims to have invented the, the lap dance. Joe Redner at one point said, time for me to branch off my own. He decided to go full nude. He got challenged by the courts. He took it all the way to the Florida Supreme Court. He won. And that's why today in Tampa we have strip club, so in a way, Dolly Parton, if you ever come to Tampa and go to a strip club, you can thank her.
0: Thank you, Dolly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've actually, personally, I've never been excited by strip clubs. It's yeah. an exercise and frustration. <laughs> uh,
1: I'm with you on that. I've, yeah. I've, 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 I'll go to them for a bachelor party at the it. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand the
0: appeal, although I'll give, I'll give our audience a big hint, and that is, if you're going to go to a strip club and get a lap dance, take a woman with you. <laughs> this is true. But what you, is that? You will get a much better lap dance if you have a woman with you. And that is what? That uh, You'll have to discuss that with the person doing the dance. But you will get much better treatment if there's a woman with you.
1: On my brother's uh, bachelor party about five years ago, we uh, jokingly got him a lap dance from a stripper who looked like she was ready to give birth at any moment because she was.
0: <laughs> she and was. was. Did she go into labor at the bachelor party? <laughs>
1: No, but she was she was ready to pop, and uh, I think that was the last time I've been to one. <laughs> well, that'll
0: do it. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll end the whole thing for you right there when she goes into labor. Water, water <laughs> a quick swivel and the water breaks.
2: <laughs> bump I don't grind ruin a, one's outfit. Bump,
0: grind, and swim. <laughs> what a story! What a story! Front page of the Tampa Times. Can't wait to see that. You've you've certainly covered some some interesting uh, interesting things in the book. The uh, Uh, Dark Side of Sunshine, whatever the hell it's called. That's it. I've got a copy of it. it. I I own one Because you sent it to me, (laughs) which I thought was very (laughs) very nice of you Uh, Tampa's Man in Black. What's that?
1: That's that's the story I just told you that would be Bobby Rodriguez. Ah, one I just told I'm one step ahead of you with the Dolly Parton story.
0: Yeah. 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 Arbor City. What's special about it? About what Arbor City
1: a- Ybor City. Ebor, Ebor? Yep, Ebor. Yeah, yeah, we were I mean, uh, so Tampa a cigar city, but it was really Ebor City. Ebor was first uh, when it was founded in the 1880s, was its own city and then it got incorporated into Tampa. Uh, and yeah, so it was founded by Cubans, Italians, Spaniards and they turned into the cigar capital of the world. I mean, they would at its peak were tens of millions of cigars a year were coming out of there, uh, that's where all the Cuban tobacco went through. Uh, and so Ybor was the place. If you were an immigrant looking for work, you went to Ebor, You wanted to work in the cigar factories. Uh, but as in any um, immigrant community in the 1900s, um, that's always where organized crime seemed to thrive. Um, you know, for reasons I don't need to get into here. But so not only did it become Cigar Capital World, but it became just a hotbed of organized crime. I mean, that, that was where uh, Santo Tropicante uh, was probably our most famous gangster. You know, that, that was, if he wasn't in Cuba, uh, in Havana and his casinos, he was in Ybor City. Most of his U.S. workers in Havana came from Ybor. Uh, you know, they would start working for him doing kind of low level stuff here in Tampa, and then he would, you know, move them into uh, Havana to work in his casinos and take care of his business there. It was, uh, I'm actually. This week, so I'm going to be doing a story this week, is Ybor had these, uh, the uh, the, uh, the mafia, they, they built a series of underground tunnels under the streets of Ebor for them to run, you know, all their illicit wares. And they've been covered up for years. Um, They're like a maze of tunnels that, you know, you can get from one building to the next uh, and out into the neighborhoods. And they've they, been they, they, they covered for years, but every so often one of the buildings, gets kind of redone. Like somebody buys it and they start redeveloping it. When they do, the tunnels get uncovered. And it's a fun story. You get to go out and, you know, they show off the tunnel and I'm doing that this week. it's um, you know, strange though because there are these tunnels and, they, and most people, they'll say, yeah, it was for moonshine, but there are no. legit photos of, that people have of police helping, you know, th- these criminals unload moonshine and carry it into the bar. So most people don't think it was for moonshine. The theory is they think it was for human trafficking. Um... And not so much drugs, uh, but nobody will really ever know, because nobody else
0: will Well, in uh, Bisbee, Arizona, very similar uh, to—in Washington state, you have cities with these tunnels underneath. And the reason for the tunnels, at least uh, in in Bisbee, Arizona, and in Washington state, in eastern Washington, was you had all these whorehouses. And what are they going to do with all the sheets, all the laundry? And he drops down a laundry shoes into these tunnels underneath the city, <laughs> and the Chinese, who were doing the laundry, uh, who are not allowed to be seen. It's still, I believe, on the books in Bisbee that you can't be Chinese and be in the city limits. Uh, you can't be seen uh, after dark or during the day <laughs> or any time. How can something like that be on the books? Well, okay, well the same reason you got laws in, uh, that say you can't serve tuna fish on Sunday. Blue laws that aren't on the—they <laughs> so can use them to prosecute someone when they can't find anything else to get them on.
1: So the you're telling rolling. me these tunnels could be for laundry?
0: Yes, for laundry, because if you have a lot of houses of prostitution, who's doing all the laundry? Drop down the laundry chute into the tunnels underneath. The Chinese go through, pick up all the laundry, do it all, and deliver it back. And uh, that was the purpose for many of these tunnels, uh, for example, underneath Bisbee, Arizona, and underneath, I think, La Grande, Oregon, and uh, places like that, were uh, to keep the Chinese from being seen, but uh, use them and abuse them. Mm-hmm. That's
1: a lot less sexy than the moonshine. I'm going to stick with my moonshine. <laughs>
2: okay.
0: Rather than just doing the laundry for the whorehouses. Well. No,
1: actually, I, I I, had a historian reach out to me a few years ago, and she had another belief, and she even had some documentation to prove it. And what I said was uh, human trafficking, human stuff smuggling, but it wasn't in the way that we think of it today, where people are trafficking these people for terrible reasons. These were people who were stuck in, like, fascist countries and wanted to get out, so they would, they would get themselves into Cuba, and then from Cuba, they can get smuggled illegally into the United States through Tampa, because you got to remember, Miami didn't explode until the 60s, uh, you know, following Castro's rise to power, so prior to that, Tampa was the number one uh, port, the closest port to Cuba, so they would sm- then smuggle these people from Europe to Cuba from Havana to Tampa, and then these tunnels were supposedly to help them avoid detection. So um, before there was a need to build a wall to keep immigrants out, uh, it was Cuba mm. that they were coming from.
2: Well, wow. you, you have an interesting story in how uh, law enforcement in Tampa brought down organized crime. You mean the airplane? No, not the airplane. That was the that was uh, ra- that was the numbers racket. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, um, Captain, where's Captain here? Ellis Clifton. Oh, yes. oh, you, oh, you're talking about his deal with Castro. Oh, well, no, you pimped it too soon.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, it's well, we still a fun story. So my brother and I were making, shooting a documentary on Charlie Wall, um, who was Tampa's first head of the organized crime. He was an Anglo, wasn't Italian, and, you know, in the early 1900s, he was the most powerful man in Tampa. So we're shooting a documentary on him. And the guy who investigated Charlie Wall ended up getting murdered um, in, in his home by the Sicilian factions. So mm-hmm. we're, we're doing this documentary, and Ellis Clifton was the investigator of the murder. So we're interviewing him on that. And when we get done talking to him about that, you know, the gentleman knew he was on his last year. He had an oxygen tank hooked up, you know, wasn't well. So he said, well, what else do you want to ask me? So we start asking questions about Trofe And then he says, well, we had that deal with Castro up in the hills that have uh, decided him... And that if we helped get him the gun, he would give us Tropicante. So we got quiet, We're like, wait, what? And he says, I won't tell you more, but that's the gist of it. Uh, so Castro did come to Tampa in, I believe, oh, I'm guessing, um, in November 1955. Um, you know, th- this was before he was in power to help, and he was here to help raise money for the um, revolution. Actors. Yeah, so it's very possible that he met with Ellis Clifton while here, because Ellis Clifton was head of the Vice Squad then. And I don't think that meant our sheriff's office was done to Castro. That just seems crazy. It, if I had to guess, it would mean that they were looking the other way while the Cubans here in Tampa were running guns. Oh, yeah, I
0: would, I would assume they were looking the other way, because you said there's money in looking the other way.
1: Yeah, and so when Castro took power— you know, the deal was, we'll help you, and then when you take power, you give us Tropicante, because Tropicante at that point was in Cuba full-time. He stopped coming back to the United States. Guy, Ellis Clifton, couldn't arrest him on anything as long as he was there, and he was wanted in New York for the murder of um, um, uh, Anastasia. So... Um, Pastor comes to power, he arrests Tropicante, keeps him for a while. When he finally throws him out of the country, Alice Clifton says he gets a phone call at his house one day. It's Cuban government. They said, we're putting him on National Airlines. He's landing in Miami. He'll be at the, he'll, he'll be there at so-and-so time. Go get him. So he shows up with a warrant for the arrest of, of the New York murder, and uh, Tropicante's attorney is waiting for him. Somebody has tipped him off, too, and he says, that warrant means nothing anymore. They threw up charges. And he was not able to arrest him on that day. But he had him out of Cuba. He, it was a line I, I use all the time. I have to give Dallas Clifton. He said there was too much water in between us and Tropicante to do anything. We just we couldn't stop him from doing anything because we couldn't walk after him when he was in Cuba. The second he got back into Tampa, he said, we just had police following him, obviously, everywhere he went. He was like, the guy couldn't go to the bathroom without somebody watching Mm. And so, after a while, Trump just left Tampa, went to Miami, they did the same thing there, and as Alice says, they finally just... You know, they were still organized crime, but it was never to that level that it was pre-Castro, because without a safe haven in Cuba, you know, you always had eyes watching you. So it was just more dangerous. And he says that's what brought down organized crime. For everything you hate about Castro, there's a billion reasons to hate that man. He was, you know, but... By throwing the by throwing the mafia out, I mean that was kind of the end of that. Sure, the whole under but uh, Batista whatever everything was different. Yeah, and there's still organized crime, but it was. I think mean, we all know as historians, 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, that was. Oh no, 50s and 60s was just. I was. I even use the phrase "glory years" because there was nothing glorious about what those men were doing. But that was when it was at its apex, when it was its most powerful, and it was because they had that. Safe place to go in Cuba. And once they lost
0: that, you know. I know I'm, I'm old enough to remember, and some people just have their minds blown by this, but it's true. And Howard's uh, old enough to remember this when, when Fidel Castro used to be a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. That's crazy. And he would, this is, you know, before we, 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 we were not his friend. And he would come and he'd be on the Jack, with Jack Par was, was hosting the Tonight Show. He'd be on the Tonight Show. He'd come to New York because he loved Broadway plays. He loved uh, the baseball games, and he was very clever. And uh, you know, he spoke English fluently. And he was a great guest on the Jack Parr Tonight Show. And they had this whole thing of raising money for tractors for Cuba. And, You're right. yeah. And uh, that was a big deal. He was our good buddy, until uh, he came and he wanted to meet with the president. What, Eisenhower? And mm-hmm. Eisenhower shuffled him off to Nixon, the vice president. That pissed Castro
2: off. Well, me too. Yeah. Well, just anyone shuffled off to Nixon. Yes, sure. And that <laughs> was the joke. Thank you for doing it again, though. Yeah. Eisenhower played golf that day. It was because he wanted to play golf. Yeah.
0: And that, but, that. Did I hear you say Castro was a swell guy, Burl? Uh, well, we, we thought he was at the time. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, he was America's good buddy until... Eisenhower shuffled him off to Nixon, yep. and that pissed Castro off, and yep. that's when he went with the uh, the Soviets. And all of a sudden, he wasn't our pal anymore. Yeah, but but even while while he was uh, supposed pal, he was murdering. Uh, no doubt, murdering. We have had so many citizens. pals that, that did that. Uh, Papa Doctor Valier, <laughs> you know, name him and he, claim him.
1: He was going to be he was going to be our bad guy, and not Russia's bad guy. Yeah, uh, I guess the best way to put. I mean, because Batista was our bad guy, and he was. As brutal as they came to.
0: Terrible guy. Yeah, I'm not inviting him over. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) No, I'm not. If he shows up, I'll really be dismayed. Then you're talking. (laughs) If you're not careful, he might be you. It's it's very dangerous to be America's good buddy. (laughs) Whether you're you're, uh, the Shah of Iran or uh, Papa Dr. Volier or uh, uh, Madame Chu. (laughs) Fu Manchu, Dr. Strange, any of those people. That's a 69, isn't it? Two two Chew. Yeah. Two canchu, yes. Two They're right. We do taste like chicken. Oh, God. (laughs) Where were we? Where were we, Paul, before we got sidetracked off into the wide world? Hey, I did know a fellow. Maybe you know the story behind this. The number two guy in Cuba under Castro was actually an American double agent. What was his name? God, I can't recall. But his bodyguard was also uh, working for us. And when when it all came down, uh, the guy who was his bodyguard wound up in the witness protection program selling cars in Everett, Washington. I've not heard that. And we became buddies. And he told me the whole story. It was pretty amazing.
1: I've been working for 12 years and we're finally ready to do the final draft. I'll probably be able to get to it in a, in a few months when I finish up another project from on but on the history of Tampa's role in the Cuban Revolution. And, you know, uh-huh. the, Castro's army was called the 26th of July Movement, and he had a branch here in Tampa where their main role was raising money and uh, running guns in Cuba. And so the last surviving member of that, I've been working with his family 12 years. We're finally getting ready to finish up that book. It's just been painstaking to uh, just translate all the documents and, uh, you know, fact-check all his stories, but it is going to be a uh, fascinating book, and not because of my writing, just because of the stories he has. But anyway, one of them is, because um, you mentioned Castro's number two, you know who Sin uh, Fuegos was? It was Castro Che, and Saint Fuegos were kind of like the, uh, the communist, you know, triplets, I guess you could call them, and Sin Fuegos... He was very popular, and uh, the theory was that his popularity was getting greater than Castro's following the revolution. And then Cienfuegos went on a plane trip one day, and his plane crashed. Oh. And there's always been a theory that you know Castro uh, did that because he was worried this guy was getting more popular. There's no proof, but uh, I'm writing the story this week for the uh, for the Times. In about a month after he died, it was, what, 59 years ago tomorrow is when he died, right? Today's the 27th, yeah, so 59 years ago tomorrow. About two weeks later, there's all these stories popping up all over the country that uh, Camillo Cienfuegos had been spotted in Ybor City uh, so that he faked his death and he escaped to Tampa and he lived out his dying days here he became like and there's stories that pop up every couple of years another Steve uh sighting in, somewhere in Tampa he, beca- he became like our Elvis sighting. it's not true at some point somebody would have outed if. if
0: well it's the same down. thing with uh, with Hitler in Argentina hey isn't that the Fuhrer <laughs> you gotta yeah. shave off well, that mustache <laughs> man this hour <laughs> went fast didn't it? damn yeah hey Paul thank you so much thanks a lot Hey, well, thanks, thanks for having it's me. It's been a few years since you've been here, and we'll wait a few years to invite you back. We'll <laughs> we'll <hope have> you <laughs> back so. It was great fun. Great fun as always, Paul. Thank you so much. Hey, bro uh, Yeah. Well, what's next? Magic, battle on the deepest of Texas live for the Light Up Lounge on LR Radio Live .com.